You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Knife wound, no other marks. We're waiting, Mr. Scott. Oh, can I make you understand you've got the wrong man? I loved her. You loved her, so you killed her. That's understandable. She was all I had. So you made sure no one could take her from you. Oh, you're blind. Why would we come all this way together? I let you tell me why. Just answer three questions. How long has this woman been in Havana? Oh, we got off the boat around six o'clock this evening. Eight hours ago. Had she ever been here before? Do you know anyone here, anyone at all? No. There is your answer. Do you still insist somebody else did it? In a place where she had just arrived, in a place where she had never been in her life before? And above all, with your own knife? It wasn't my knife, but you just admitted a moment ago it was your I didn't admit it wasn't my knife. I merely said it looked like my knife, but it wasn't. Oh, yes. Now I remember. The knife you bought. You did buy a knife. Yes, I bought a knife! Save your strength, my friend. You may need it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is the inimitable Ms. Maitland McDonough. Hi there. Also back with this week, after far too long an absence, is Mr. Colin Gallagher. Howdy. Wrapping up Noir November 2016, we are discussing Arthur D. Ripley's The Chase. Released in 1946, the film stars Robert Cummings as Chuck Scott, a.k.a. Scotty, a down-on-his-luck veteran who happens upon a billfold of one Eddie Roman, a crook and, worse, a heel. When Scotty visits Roman at his palatial estate... Roman figures him to be a good egg and makes Scotty his chauffeur. When Eddie's wife asks Scotty for help, he decides to take her to Havana, and that's when his nightmare begins. We're going to be getting into some spoilers for this 70-year-old film, so if you haven't seen The Chase and don't want it ruined for you, turn us off and go watch the film. We will still be here. Now, Maitland, when was the first time you saw The Chase, and what did you think? I think the first time I saw The Chase was in California at some kind of a little mini noir retrospective that I only went to because I happened to be there at that time. And there were a couple of movies being shown that I hadn't seen before. So I thought, well, why not? And uh, I'm very glad that I followed that impulse. It was one of those movies that you look at and you think, okay, I remember I've read a thing or two about this movie. Probably. I, I don't think I'd read much then. But I've read all the basic noir books, and it was mentioned in them without a great deal being said. And all I could think was, so glad I did not miss the opportunity to see this, because it is nutty and, and really quite powerful. How about you, Colin? When did you first see it, and what did you think? It must have been on DVD, but probably one of those crummy public domain prints that wasn't so great. But I got a copy of the 
Kino Blu-ray when it came out recently, and it was you know a revelation to be able to see just how stunning the cinematography was, the, the direction, the camera movement. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. What did you think the first time we saw it? I I can't remember to be honest. I I, I I think the print was just so murky that you know I saw it. I liked it. I knew the Woolrick, you know, story. I liked you know his types of stories. It didn't leave as much an impression as it did the you know the second time when I could fully take in just how out, out, out there and uh, you know wild this movie is. I think I probably saw this probably right around the time I saw The Stranger on the Third Floor, we were talking about last week, um, going through kind of a Peter Laurie phase. And this one, you're almost in for disappointment if you're watching this as a Peter Laurie film, because he's in it, he plays a great role, but he's really almost like the minor part to it, because there's so much other stuff happening in this movie, you know, like when, you know, we talked last week about when Joel Cairo comes on screen, it's like, oh, wow, you know, he's really magnetic or even, you know, Ugarte in, in Casablanca is just like your eyes are drawn to him. And in this one, he's really kind of sedate. I don't know if it was like the morphine or whatever was going on, but it was just kind of like low key. And then the rest of the movie is so nuts. I mean, this is one of the few films that I can think of that basically like hits the restart button at one point in the movie. And you're just like, what the hell just happened? And it is glorious for that. Now people have talked about how faithful or non-faithful it is to the Woolrich story. We'll definitely be getting into that. I think it captures some of the spirit of the Woolrich story, but it has its own flavor and it's just, it's a flavor that I really enjoy and kind of to your point Colin it's been out and is is readily available it's out there um, on YouTube it's on archive.org so it was very easy to find a copy of this but I do have to say that the Kino Lorber disc that came out recently the Blu-ray you do see it for the first time with new eyes seeing it in that restored version it is such a different film just that you're not peering into that murkiness. I mean, we talked uh, three weeks ago, uh, Maitland, you and I with, with Krista Faust talking about that uh, what Serbian version of uh, Decoy. This is the same kind of thing where it's just like, okay, the the murkiness kinds of, it kind of adds to the dream quality, but you really do need to see this in the restored version to get the full appreciation of this particular film. And I think one of the things that's really fantastic about this movie is that it defies what most people expect from film noir. I mean, the first thing that they expect to see when they go to see a noir movie is they expect it to be dark. But this is a movie that is just washed with sunlight. It's bright on bright. And that adds to its nightmarish quality because everything about it seems to be contradictory. Everything that's going on is so incredibly dark and dreadful, and yet it is bathed in this incredible Miami light. That's a great point, and I, I think that's also one of the ways in which the movie deviates from the book, which is largely at night and in dark buildings. And I think it's a really marvelous change of tone from the from the book. And it's uh, I sort of like when a movie can give it like a new sort of vision, um, but still remain faithful to uh, you know the spirit. 
And this is very different. You know, we talked last week on Strange in, on the Third Floor about New York Noir versus San Francisco versus L.A. And one of the things that New York Noir and I would say even Chicago Noir have, they tend to be a lot darker and it does tend to be city at night. Whereas they're, what is it, like the first, at least the first full act of this film is in that broad daylight. And it's all set in Florida, which is an unusual location for film noir but though it shouldn't be especially you know it's kind of it reminded me a little bit of touch of evil where you had the border world and you had that crossing over into tijuana and with this one you have a very clear separation of being in florida versus being in cuba and, and havana in particular and just that that kind of represents these more base elements you know that's where you have the you know the chinatown and these kind of darker corners of the world and that's where the movie gets really dark and stays dark. I think uh, almost every moment that they're in Havana seems to be taking place at night. And, and I think their boat ride over there isn't even until like 11 something at night. So you're, you're going to be in this dark world. Whereas, yeah, we start in the daytime and really we kind of start with what I would say would be kind of a, I don't know. It, it felt like the beginnings of a film noir story where you have this kind of, down on his luck guy who is staring in through this window looking at uh, the, these uh, ham and eggs or ham and uh, or bacon and pancakes being cooked on a griddle and he's just like oh man you know like tightening his belt a little bit like I wish I could have some of that and then he manages to find uh, he kicks a, a wallet uh, which is down by his feet and rather than going in and feasting and taking the rest of the money, throwing the wallet away. He's a nice guy and he decides he's going to go and track down the owner of the wallet to give it back and fess up that he took, what, $2 out of the wallet. A classic example of no good deed going unpunished. Although Mr. Roman, who is the owner of that wallet, does give him points for only having spent, I think it's $1.87 on breakfast and having fessed up to it. Dollar eighty-seven. He's got like six or seven plates, and it looks like he just <laughs> stuffed himself. And I'm like, wow, how times have changed. Let's talk about Eddie Roman. I mean, his his house, or I should say, the set for his house, is one of the oddest things that I've seen in a movie in a long time. And we, we talked last week about that dream sequence in Stranger, and this almost reminded me of that, just with all these disembodied heads and all of the the statuary all over the place it kind of reminded me also of like uh, uh uh charles foster kane the way that he would just amass you know statues and not really have a place for them or have a reason for them any roman's place is just filled with statues so it's all of these bodies every place or heads and then just that stark lighting on them and these harsh shadows on these walls and they're just they're all on these pillars and and they're all over the place when it comes to this there doesn't seem to be any sort of order and when we have robert cummings coming in to the set it just it just feels absolutely bizarre it feels like he's you know in a mortuary more than he does in uh somebody's estate it really feels like eddie thinks that this is how the the rich work you know you have to have lots of statues so he's going to fill his whole freaking house with statues I'm really glad you mentioned Citizen Kane because that was exactly what I thought of when I was looking at this movie. It really is as though Charles Foster Kane sent half of those boxes of things he bought in Europe and the U.S. and just 
said, take them, open them up, do what you want with them. And on the one hand, they are displayed in a way that suggests that somebody cared a little bit about it. They're on pedestals, they're on platforms. And yet, as you said, they are just, it's like going to your grandma's house and finding that your grandma just bought 400 statues and had somebody put them wherever they could put them. You expect to see an anti-macassar on, on those statues' heads, frankly, because there is something that is so not aesthetic and not about the appreciation of sculpture, but it's more about, oh, wow, I've got all this stuff and I don't want to leave it in my garage. So I brought it in my house and eh, yeah, I just, I just put it up someplace. I mean, it's a total show off. I mean, it, it gives you a lot of insight into you know, Eddie as a character and his, you know, sense of, you know, control and ownership that he, that he desires. As does the first time when we actually see him, when Peter Laurie as Gino, after I love that the peephole shot that we get of Laurie looking through the peephole, and after he shows Chuck Scott up to Eddie Roman, and even before Chuck goes all the way upstairs, we get a glimpse of Roman. We get him with this silver mirror, looking at himself, admiring himself. This you know huge hat that this woman is is showing him, and this weird exchange between him and this woman. I like it. That's all right. You got a good barber, Miss Carnish. Oh, thank you, Mister Rowan. How do you feel? I mean, uh, how's it feel being a barber? Cutting men's hair. Feels good, huh? And look at her. Yeah, she's blushing. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Roman. You moved. But you didn't. Quick enough. You didn't, and smacks her right in the face, and just she bawls, you know, starts crying, starts bawling. And the other woman takes her downstairs, kind of protecting her. And that's the first kind of glimpse of what Eddie Roman is about that Scott gets when he's coming up to meet this man. And it's just terrifying to me to, to have this woman being led down and just crying her eyes out. I mean, he must have really laid into her for her to cry this much. And plus, I'm sure there was the surprise of it as well. It's so sadistic. And it's also kind of fascinating because his barber is a woman, which adds just that, that hint of oddness to it that makes you so much more aware of the scene. I mean, normally, a guy's barber would be a man, but here it's a middle-aged woman who clearly knows her craft and is good at it and clearly feels protective of the manicurist, who is a much younger woman. The, the whole thing is a, a very... Um, as you said, a very sadistic kind of dynamic and one in which you can see that these women are at a disadvantage and just trying to hold themselves together for it. And that's certainly something that you see throughout this film. I don't think you ever get any feeling that Eddie Roman cares the slightest bit about women, except as showpieces, like the statues that are scattered throughout his house. He doesn't like them. He's not interested in them. He doesn't want to talk to them. They're just things like all the other stuff he collects. And, and you know very clearly that, you know, once he gets tired of that stuff, that stuff is going to be in bad shape. He makes that really odd remark to the barber. Does it make you feel good cutting men's hair? I mean, there, there's something so weaselly and just uncomfortable about that. 
in the hands of another filmmaker or another writer, we would probably get more of an implied relationship between Eddie and Gino because they are as tight as tight can be, but there isn't that quite that relationship like we get between James Mason and Martin Landau in North by Northwest. I don't really get that kind of, you know, my gaydar isn't going off when I'm watching this, but in any other movie, I think I might get that feeling because of the way that Eddie, he does treat women as objects. And it seems like his allegiance is more towards Gino than it is even towards his, his own squeeze. And it just seems like she's yet another trophy to kind of, you know, another statue to put up on a pedestal and then look up her dress. It's the same kind of vibe that you get in Maltese Falcon. It, it, it is very, I think, not overt at the time, but when you look at those films now, it's impossible not to see that kind of poisonous, repressed, dangerous hint of uh, of homosexuality in a way that is clearly coded as something that that is aberrant and uh, and violent. That's something that's not in the book. They they really did flesh out Eddie's character for the movie, and I, and I liked seeing that development. And I think that that the actor that plays him is it's Steve Cochran. Am I right? Or, um, yeah, he plays him so well, and he's just. He's handsome but oily at the same time, and he just has that glint in his eye at all times where you're just waiting for him. And after, especially after he strikes out at that manicurist, you're waiting at all times for him to become violent because you've seen him strike out like a snake, and you're just waiting for him to do that again to somebody, and you never know when it's necessarily coming. If that, like her clipping his nail wrong or whatever, could set him off like that, who knows what else is going to set this guy off. And basically throughout the film, you're waiting for that to happen to, to Scotty because he's the person who's put himself in a position where he's always vulnerable and where at any moment he could say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, just glance in the wrong direction, and that fury could be turned on him. And I guess I do kind of feel that jealousy of Gino when they have that exchange between Gino, Scotty, and, and Eddie they're talking to Scotty about the wallet and about how he gave it back and just Gino constantly undercutting everything, talking about what a sucker Scotty is all the time for returning the wallet, for being the nice guy, for, for trying to do the right thing. How do you like that for an honest guy? I don't. Silly law-abiding jerk. I like him. I want to do something for him. Give him a sawbuck. That's the trouble with you, Gino. You have no appreciation for honesty. Every single time he can, he will just throw in a little quip and just kind of tear Scotty down with that. But regardless, Eddie still ends up giving him a job. He's going to make him a chauffeur. And I love that to make him a chauffeur, he has to then fire the other guy. And uh, Scotty is not very happy about that at all. But we still have him ending up getting the job. And then we have this amazing scene and I'm I, I kept waiting for it to come back because I couldn't remember if they used this gag twice or not and I knew they kind of had to where we have this amazing scene of uh, Scotty driving around Eddie and Gino so Eddie and Gino are in the back seat Scotty's up front and then Eddie has this gizmo in the back seat where he can flip up a panel and he's got a brake pan uh, he's got a uh, an accelerator and a brake and a speedometer right there. And he can take over 
the car and take over the acceleration and the braking from the back seat. You know, never one to allow anyone else to be in control. He's the one who, you know, ends up basically driving the car and, and showing Scotty that he's the one in charge. Well, and how much do you love that, you know, he's putting, you know, pedal to the metal from the back seat. That is so crude and lewd and yet so sophisticated and funny at the same time. And it's my, I, I actually have not read this novel, but it's my understanding that that device is, that device both as a literary thing and as a physical thing is not in the book. That was an invention for the movie and it is just fabulous. It's been a while since I've read the book and I know that we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth as we go along, but Colin, you just reread it and I'm curious how much of the story takes place in Florida versus taking place in Cuba. Well, you know, that scene with the uh, pedal, that's not in the book at all. The biggest difference structurally between the book and the movie is that the book begins in Cuba with the murder. And, it, with, you know, within one chapter, you've already begun a, a chase scene and he's on the run. And the first third of the book almost is, you know, this one chase. And then there's a flashback to give you a lot of the, what becomes like the beginning of the movie. And then the last, you know, third of both the book and the movie are entirely different. There is a kind of a flashback in this film, but so much of film noir, you know, we talked about this even on the decoy episode, it relies on the flashback. And that's one of the the big structural things that kind of is like, um, you know, some people say that film noir is a genre and other people say it's a set of stylistic conventions. And as a set of stylistic conventions, that is one of the biggest ones. You know, you've got the VO, you've got the, the flashback, and then, of course, the chiaroscuro lighting, those kind of things. But to have the flashback kind of almost be sacrificed in this is interesting that we don't start in Cuba, that we start it's pretty much a linear story at this point. We have, it's almost instead of boy meets girls, boy meets girl's boyfriend, boy meets girl. And then boy tries to make boy with girlfriend lose girl. You know, he, he ends up meeting Lorna, who is Eddie's main squeeze, uh, his wife, you know, she is Lorna Roman. And, uh, she has Scotty drive her every night to this place on the beach and is just pining and trying to imagine a life without Eddie. And at one point asks, you know, Scotty, what's what's out there? What's across, you know, the ocean or what's across the water here? And he's like, well, I think that's Havana. And then she wants to go to Havana. And then it sets off this whole plot of, you know, him buying the tickets for the for the uh, the cruise for the for the voyage over to Havana. Is he going to be able to get her out of the house? How's this going to happen? Eddie kind of guesses it's what uh, what is going to happen. You know, pretty much takes a stab in the dark and figures it all out. I mean, Eddie is not a dummy by any means. I mean, he's very shrewd when it comes to this, and he's also ruthless. We talked about how ruthless he is, but I mean, this is one of the few movies where you know you have uh, a a, uh, <laughs> a a dog being your murder weapon. This whole thing of him inviting this businessman over to kind of show us how uh, Eddie performs business. He invites this guy over he wants what this guy has and when the guy doesn't want to give it to him he ends up sending him down to the cellar to look at his wine cellar again you know he's got all the trappings of being this refined person 
and he, here's this uh, businessman. He's got this Napoleon brandy, but really Eddie could give two shits because really what he wants is this guy's business. And so he sets the dog on him. And what a, a, a chilling scene that is. I mean, of course, we don't see anything, but just the idea of it is just absolutely horrific. It almost reminded me of like something a like Turner or, or Val Luton would have done and kept people the way you hear the dog, the camera, you know, just approaches, you know, the character and then it pans and you just hear everything and you see the, the wine and the, you know, it's almost like, you know, a substitute for the blood. And specifically, it reminds me very much of the leopard man in which you see exactly that same kind of horrible thing that you don't see, but then you see the aftermath pouring out into the street. It, it very reminiscent of Luton, and Luton certainly was a master of this kind of filmmaking. And The Leopard Man, I think, was based on another Woolrich story, if memory serves. So that kind of leads to another flag for Scotty and for Lorna to see how vicious Eddie is, and yeah, eventually they make their way over to Cuba, and you're just wondering... When is Eddie going to come over there? Is he there already? Because he's obviously he's wise to their schemes. You know, he gets wise to it very, very quickly. And that's kind of when we begin our story from the book versus the story for the movie is when they are in Cuba, they've arrived. They're going to continue on allegedly to South America. And so they're spending an afternoon, evening in Cuba away from their ship. And they get taken, well, first they get taken, we don't see this on screen, but they get taken to a Cuba's Chinatown where they, uh, where Scotty ends up buying this knife. There are three knives that they have with uh, jade handles and they've got the see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil monkeys on them. And then what we do see is them arriving at this club, uh, which in the book is called Sloppy Joe's. I'm not sure if it has that same name in the movie or not. And they go in, and this photographer ends up taking their picture. And wouldn't you know it, it again, kind of reminds me of North by Northwest again, I guess. As soon as that flashbulb goes off, she gets a knife in the back. She goes down, and of course, Scotty's the only one around her. He's the only one in Cuba who knows her. And the cop, who's this very, very smart cop, Acosta, I think his name is, he has no problem putting two and two together and basically knowing that Scotty is the criminal. But now we are suddenly plunged into the wrong man kind of a uh, a plot here, where now Scotty has to be on the run and prove his innocence all at once. And one of the things I like about this movie is, as you mentioned, that Acosta, the Cuban cop, is not stupid and he's not corrupt. He's clearly not on the right side of our protagonist's story, but he's a perfectly reasonable guy. He's conducting a good investigation, and he's drawing really the most reasonable conclusions that one could draw from the evidence that he has in his possession. So it doesn't have that feel of a narrative that is contrived to make everything that's foreign, everything that is not American, seem as though it's somehow menacing and corrupt by its very nature, it, it feels as though, well, yeah, he has every reason to think what he thinks. And one of the other things that I like about this movie is that once you get into the Havana portions of it, you hear a lot of characters speaking Spanish without other characters 
translating or without the actors playing these Latin characters, saying a couple of words in Spanish and then speaking the rest of their dialogue in Spanish-accented English. There's a legitimacy to the Cuban environment in this movie that I think you don't necessarily see in a lot of movies of this period, which often played to the kind of mainstream cultural American perceptions of foreign countries as being places that were dangerous and chaotic and places where Americans weren't safe. I always appreciate when a movie doesn't translate for us, doesn't give us the subtitles, because then we're suddenly plunged into the same world that our protagonist is. You know, we don't have a leg up on Scotty by knowing what these people are saying. I mean, obviously you do if you speak Spanish or understand Spanish, but if we're in Scotty's same boat, we don't know what is going on. So suddenly you have this foreignness where you're in this place where you don't understand the language and they could be saying anything about you or about him or about the crime and he has no say in the matter. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about this. And I like even the exchange that he has with the uh, the carriage driver where the carriage driver is speaking to him in English and then Scotty's asking him some more questions and suddenly I think he says something about like, uh, you know, no hablo inglés, but he says it a, a little bit more and just is very rude about it. And it's like, oh, okay, that's kind of nice. He suddenly doesn't speak the language anymore because it's he just wants to end the conversation and off he goes. But yeah, I, I do appreciate Acosta being very smart. And the other thing I appreciate is when they end up kind of following Scotty, you know, tells the tale of like, Oh no, I bought the, the, the monkey with the um, ears covered. And this is the knife that where it has the eyes covered. So they end up going back to the place where he bought the knife. And in the book it's Chinatown. And here it, it might still be Chinatown, but it's it's a, a Latina woman who's running the shop. So you don't have the that oh god that that what could be an embarrassing scene, uh, which you kind of get in the radio plays, and we'll talk about the radio plays in a bit. But you don't have that embarrassment of somebody speaking pidgin English with a Chinese accent, quote unquote. So luckily they'd avoid that uh, what could be a very culturally embarrassing moment. Although what's also fascinating is that her name is Chin, which suggests that she is Asian, even though she is clearly not Asian and doesn't speak with any kind of accent. It's another example of the way in which this movie doesn't use, you could say either the, the cliches or the standard imagery of that period, depending on how you want to cast it. But in, in any event, it, it just doesn't do that. It presents certain things in a very straightforward way that really looks quite fresh and radical to us looking at it now because we've seen a lot of movies in which those kind of stereotypes and cliches are just part of the narrative and are not necessarily meant in a pejorative or offensive way. They're just the way that kind of story was told at that time. And that's not the way it's being told in this film. Another thing that I like a lot is that when you get into that, that maze-like collection of, it's not an apartment building, it's just a, a bunch of relatively low buildings that are all connected by courtyards. And on the door of that young woman, there's a sign that says quarantine. And it's not translated, and you can certainly see what quarantine means. But the word that follows it is smallpox instead, which 
you would never know unless, as I did, you went and you looked it up online. And that also adds a, a real kind of nice to the heart quality to it because you can quarantine for a lot of things, but smallpox is no joke. So it suggests just how painfully poor, how painfully underserved by any kind of health organizations, and how painfully day-to-day that is in this neighborhood. You actually just have signs up on doors saying, oh, by the way, the family here has smallpox, so you might not want to come in. But of course, Scotty doesn't know that because he doesn't speak Spanish. So he's there standing behind the door in the apartment of a woman whose home has been quarantined because of smallpox. It's a, another way, again, of showing that he is in a, a world that he is really blundering through. And at many points, he has no idea what he's doing and whether he's made a, a smart decision because hiding, hiding in that apartment behind the door keeps him from getting caught at that moment or whether he has just gone out of the frying pan into the fire, because now he's exposed himself to smallpox. Right. Now it's suddenly panic in the streets. The woman who helps him out, she goes by the name Midnight, and it, it, she's even credited as Midnight on IMDb, though I don't even know if she gives her name in the film, and she definitely has just a minuscule role, but she is such a major player in the book that she's just in here for like a hot second, you know, like, oh, I helped you out because I don't like the police. And then he's off, you know, like looking for the photographer and, and wants, you know, to, to prove his innocence by seeing this photograph and really just like, bam, keeps barreling on. Whereas in the book, it's just like, okay, here's this character, Medianoche, and she's talking about her husband and how her husband had the smallpox and don't worry, everything's been, you know, cleaned and everything disinfected. But she's got this whole story and she is just this blip on the radar when it comes to the film and it's just amazing the way that you know these two different or well actually three different adaptations between uh, uh or three different versions i should say between book radio and movie can treat this one particular character her little moment that she has on screen just speaks volumes about what her life and by extension the life of many people like her is and how completely beaten down they are by the system. I mean, all she has to say is, I hate cops, and that's why I'm helping you. I don't care about you. You're of no interest to me at all, but I hate the cops so much that I'm willing to let you hide in my apartment. It's a really powerful, powerful moment that the film doesn't dwell on in any way, and you, you, you have that brief scene, and then it's gone, and yet the impact of it is really powerful. I, I agree. She's she's one of my favorite parts of this movie. And in the book, her character, you know, does continue and she becomes, you know, as much a protagonist as uh, Scotty. Um, I mean, she reminds me almost as of the protagonist in either um, the, the Black Angel or even the Bride Were Black. This, you know, the, this woman who goes into the night. Um, she's doing a lot of detective work. She's coming up with all the plans to save Scotty. When he tries to leave her behind, she won't have any of that, and she wants to play a major role. It's really a fascinating uh, you know, sub-narrative, and it would be nice if they had kept it in the movie, but it wouldn't have fit into the, the plans that Philip Jordan has for the story, I guess we could say. Kind of a footnote for future film historians, the woman who, that played this role, Yolanda Laka, she 
doesn't seem to show up in a whole lot of things. And where she does show up, like if you look at her IMDb, every single role other than The Chase, she was in Shockproof, The Razor's Edge, Of Human Bondage, Story of G.I. Joe, Laura, and Hostages. And every single time after her name, it says uncredited, other than The Chase. That's the only one where she received a credit. I would love to know more about this woman, and especially because she can be so striking in just this few seconds. And just imagine what it would be like if Midnight had been that role that it was in the book. She would have been a major player in this film. And perhaps by consequence, she might have been, you know, a little bit more well-known in Hollywood. Like I said, we push on with the narrative. Suddenly we go into the photographer's studio. When he goes in, the photographer is dead. We see the photograph. The It's a photo of Gino, right? Throwing the knife into Lorna's back. And this hand takes the photo and burns it up. And of course, it's Gino sitting there in this photographer's studio where the guy is dead. And then it becomes this whole thing of him talking with Chin, Gino talking with Chin. And before we're done, we've got two dead bodies now. We've got the photographer and we've got Chin because Chin was threatening to kind of rat Gino and Eddie out to the cops unless she ended up getting more business from them. So don't ever threaten Eddie Marston or Gino by turn. Uh, He ends up just like tossing the bodies down into the cellar where Scotty is. And then, you know, here we are. We're, We're an hour into the film. The phone starts ringing. And wouldn't you know, the movie just kind of starts over again. This is one of the strangest things I've ever seen happen in a movie where all of a sudden we go back at least a half an hour in the narrative and we are back at Eddie's place in Florida where Scotty was laying down waiting for the plan to take Lorna to Havana and he wakes up. He has no idea where he's at. He takes some of these pills. We've seen him take some pills throughout the film. And he ends up calling this friend of his. And he's just like, it's happened again. And you're just like, what the hell is going on? What is happening in this movie? I've never seen anything quite like this. I was looking at it today and thinking, I almost feel as though I'm playing some kind of 80s arcade game. And I just hit the reset button. <laughs> Exactly. It's exactly that. You know, the, we, we kicked off November with the talk of, of uh, Mulholland Drive. I mean, this kind of reminds me of like a Lynch move where suddenly we go from here we are, we're chugging along in the narrative and then bam, we go back, you know, half an hour or so. And then we get to kind of relive the narrative again, but it's like Scotty's second chance, you know, and it's a matter of like, what's going to happen? Is there fate involved now? Is there where are we at? What's happening? What's his history? Why is he calling this doctor character? And we did get a mention before that Scotty's an XGI, and this is 1946 as this is taking place in. And I know we talked uh, in the In a Lonely Place episode about GIs and post-war trauma and all this kind of stuff, which film noir is kind of seeped in a lot of post-war trauma, but it isn't normally brought to the surface as, as much as it is with this, but obviously something has happened to Scotty. He was in the Navy. He ends up calling this Navy doctor and he's a damaged person. You can tell that something happened to him to make him like this. This movie was made a good 40 years before the term PTSD 
became one that people were familiar with. It's not that the idea that men who came back from war often came back damaged was a new one because it wasn't. I mean, you can see it as far back as, as ancient Greek narr- narratives of things like the Battle of Marathon, in which people come back from war with their minds changed. And you certainly see in the literature and the filmmaking record of the First World War that the term shell shock was coined to describe what it was that was wrong with certain people who came back from the front and simply couldn't get away from the things that they had seen and the things that they had done. But the fact is that that phenomenon was not something that was widely discussed in in mainstream media, and I think in a lot of people's homes. And yet, in this movie, it is absolutely front and center. The fact that he is gobbling pills throughout the film makes it very clear that Scotty came back with some real damage and he's being treated for it, but there isn't an enormous support system to hold him up in the way that there would be much, much later. And even much, much later, that system was, you know, wasn't always adequate to the needs of people who needed it. But it's clear that his pill-taking is not a personal failing on his part. It's not that he's the guy who just can't deal with the world, and so he reaches into a drawer and grabs a fistful of pills. He's being medicated for something that is a bigger problem than him, and he is simply one of many people who are symptomatic of it. And that's a really striking thing in this movie. I was going to bring up The Crooked Way, which I think is from 49, so it's a few years after this, but it's John Payne is a World War II vet who has amnesia and is sort of searching for his past that he can't remember as another noir you know, veteran story. I wish that I had read more Woolrich. You know, just reading some of the synopsi of his stories, like uh, he wrote one about uh, a guy who's uh, amnesiac and investigating his own past in the Black Curtain or um, the, a dream that turns into reality in, in the, the book Nightmare. And just that whole idea of, you know, it, it almost feels like this is more it's less faithful to the story that this is based on the Woolrich story, but it feels like it's more faithful to some of the other Woolrich canon. You know, it's just to have this kind of crazy move where all of a sudden we do reset, you know, it's just like, it feels like one of those things that you could get away with in a novel, but you don't necessarily see people doing in, in, a, in a film too often. And so that's one of the reasons why this one stands out so much for me. And, and the first time I saw this, I was like, I can't believe that I'm seeing this. And at first I thought, okay, this is going to be like a, a little dream. Like we're going to go back in time and kind of think about that afternoon or those kind of things. Or maybe we're going to see how Gino like took a plane to Cuba and set Scotty up. But no, we're honestly we are back in time. There, there is no second, you know, this, we never go back into what we saw as quote unquote reality. There is none of that. We never, we never break from this line again. And I just kept waiting for it. I kept waiting, waiting, waiting. Like, and then even when you're inside of this line, so we've got the, this doctor from the Navy who ends up taking Scotty out 
and then there's this whole thing about um, Eddie is going to go out, and the doctor takes um, Scotty to the Florida room. Wouldn't you know, Eddie ends up going to the Florida room. And it's amazing to see how Eddie and Gino are sitting in one part of the club and the doctor and Scotty are sitting in the other part of the club. At one point, the doctor gets up and goes over and takes a phone call and then comes back. And once you know it, the doc knows Eddie. (laughs) So they're having this conversation. And again, I thought that this was going to go a different way because at one point, Uh, the doctor points over to where Scotty is sitting. And I thought for sure we were going to get a shot from Scotty's POV looking back over and seeing the doc talking to Eddie and Gino and pointing at him. And I thought for sure Scotty was going to think, Oh my God, I can't even trust my friend, this doctor. I'm, I'm, I'm totally sunk. I need to get out of here. That doesn't happen. Though, when the doc comes back, Scotty is not there, but he does not. I don't think he thinks that he's now being pursued and that the doctor has has, uh, sold him out or anything. But the level of paranoia that that's what I assume is going to happen in this story, because this whole idea of like this reset, it's just like I was completely thrown off. And then even, unfortunately, I'd waited long enough between the previous viewing of this and then and then when I watched this again yesterday and I'm like oh yeah this is what happens like I, it, it took me off balance again like even though I knew that it was going to reset at a certain point I couldn't remember exactly how long it went and how far they took this and they go all the way and I think part of the reason that you didn't remember exactly where it reset is that the reset is done with absolutely no fanfare there's never wavy dissolve. There's absolutely nothing except a cut to a shot in a room that could be in one continuity and could be in the other. And, and you're not quite sure until you've gone several more scenes in and then you realize that, well, yeah, okay, this has just suddenly gone back to some place. And now I'm trying to get my bearings on where exactly it's gone to and where it's going from there. It's uh, the subtlety of the way that reset is done is really striking. The phone is really, and I think we might hear Lorna's voice say a line or something, but it's not, you're right, it isn't one of these like, you know, we don't hear the harp playing or anything to take us back into this. And it does set us off. It does make us as confused as Scotty when he's waking up. And with that phone ringing and ringing and ringing, the only thing I could think of was uh, Once Upon a Time in America. And I kept waiting for, like, you know, noodles or somebody to pick up the phone on the other end. But it's a nice, uh, you know, way to wake us up out of this dream, perhaps, and then take us into this whole other world. Going back to Lynch, was that first part a dream? Who knows? But now we're in this other place where we keep anticipating how bad things can get because we've seen, you know, the, the ghost of Christmas future has, has opened up the coat and shown us how bad things can get for Scotty. And he really never even knows that things might not ever get that bad because he's not privy to the Eddie and Gino story. He doesn't know what's happening in their storyline. So for all he knows, Gino and Eddie could still be coming after them when they're there in the, the, the handsome cab again. I mean, because they do eventually get back onto a boat, though they get back onto a different boat and they figure this out. And man, it just, it, it's amazing that the last, what, 24 minutes of this thing just is all this 
familiarity as far as what we've seen happen in the story before, but kind of taking uh, uh, some different paths. And then you're wondering, is it because this happened slightly different that they're able to avoid that icy touch of fate that uh, set them onto this horrible path in the first time that we saw this all happen? Right. The one that, as we heard in Detour, is, is the fate that just sticks out her foot and over you go. As they're at the Florida room, they meet another businessman who Eddie wants to take his business, this guy Fats. And Fats ends up being the one who kind of rats Scotty out, but he doesn't necessarily know that. He starts talking like, oh, when's when's your boat to Cuba? Oh, I saw your chauffeur picking up these tickets today. And, you know, just one of these great twists of fate kind of thing. And then Eddie and Gino figure out, you know, what boat they're going to take. And, oh, it's too late for this particular boat, so they're going to take this other one. Or we have to get to the dock by this time. And because there's a time crunch going on, Gino's in the front seat driving the car. But Eddie decides that he's going to drive it a little bit faster. And we've already had so the same thing played out earlier. Not only was Gino driving the car or pressing the gas when Scotty was driving earlier in the film, but it was this whole thing of, are they going to be able to outrun this train? And if you remember the PSAs in the 1990s, you, in a race between a car and a train, the car always loses. And that's what happens. They think that they're going to beat this train, and they end up, or a model car of their car, ends up in this fiery explosion. Our villains are dispatched. But like I said, I don't know if Scotty is ever going to be able to to walk around free and not look over his shoulder and think that Gino or Eddie are right there at all times. We can only hope that he sees a newspaper at some point that says fiery crash claims two lives because otherwise yes, he will be looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life. And it's happened again. You know, who knows if he's going to have a relapse. Will he wake up one more time back in that room and have to live all this stuff over again? Is there a third possibility? And that's a great potential way that this story could turn, because that really is a nightmare construction. The kind of thing that you see in particularly dreamy horror movies in which people just keep on waking up and finding that they have to relive every awful thing that they've lived already in one, two, three versions of their story. It's quite fabulous. She thinks that she's out of the cave, but actually she's still in the cave and was just dreaming about it. Oh, that's creeping me out so badly. I'm sorry, The Descent is one of those movies that truly got under my skin. So we've talked a little bit about the story that this was based on. This is The Black Path of Fear. Um, I kept screwing up the title. Like I, I even sent you guys a copy of Rendezvous in Black because wouldn't you know Cornell Woolrich writes a lot of books where black is in the title, so I kept screwing it up. But no, this is Black Path of Fear, and it was adapted before it was adapted for the movies, I believe it was adapted for radio and it was actually adapted twice, but I have to say it it was the exact same script they used the second time. It was really kind of weird because I listened to them back to back today. Um, The first one with Brian Dunleavy and the second one with Cary Grant and hearing those two back to back, I was like, yeah, this is just the same script, but they are, you know, it's, it's a different set of actors, different set of musicians, different Foley people, all this kind of stuff. So it was a little surreal to hear the story told a a second time that same way. 
I thought they did a really good job with the adaptation. Now, they start in Cuba. It's only, what, half an hour long at most, so it really condenses everything, and it follows Scotty going through Cuba and meeting Midnight and her helping him, him going to the photographer's place, him going, you know, or um, uh, it starts off with the murder, then him meeting Midnight, then going to the photographer's place, and and then basically uh, ending shortly after that. Now, he does get to... Uh, it's there's no Gino in the story. It is all Roman. Though I found it hilarious, they changed Roman's name to uh, I believe Spinelli, and I think that's because Roma Wines was sponsoring Suspense. So when <laughs> they didn't want to have Roma Wines and then Eddie Roman being the bad guy, so they changed him to Spinelli, which you know it's a nice uh, Italian name and everything, but didn't want to uh, sully the name of their sponsor with Eddie's name. And the other thing that I found interesting was that in both the book and in the radio play, it is Bill Scott, William Scott. But in the movie, they changed it to Chuck Scott. Um, And Chuck just didn't sound right. At one point, Lorna was calling him Chuck, and I was just like, wait a second, what's going on? And then, of course, they changed uh, Lorna's name as well. I think she was, what, Eve in the the book, and then she was Lorna in the the movie, and she was also Eve in the the story as well. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Cullen, but the – the radio play and the book and somewhat similarly as far as a confrontation with Eddie and is there a Gino character in the book? Not really. Not, not to the extent as in the, in the movie, the biggest difference. Well, I mean, in the, uh, the book, since there is no reset, um, Lorna really was murdered. Spoiler alert, but you already told people, watch the movie so we don't have to worry about that. Um, and so it ends back in Cuba where he's trying to prove his innocence and Midnight uh, you know, is, is, is assisting him with this. What I find really curious is that the radio adaptations end with, you know, they, you know, Eddie is done away with um, Chuck Scott is, you know, exonerated. The police aren't after him anymore. And then it looks like he's going to get the girl. He bails midnight out of jail in the radio adaptations. He invites her for a drink and she says, no, like, you know, I still have the memory of my old lover in the book. He's about to ask her for a drink. And then he says, but I can't cause I still, he's still in love with, uh, Mrs. Roman. So he rejects her. And then the last line of the book, I, I, I just adore. Let me pull it up. It just says, it was lonely standing there by myself at the bar like that. Doesn't he even kind of talk to the spirit of, of Eve in this one? Yeah, well, yeah, right before that, he's sort of saying, to, you know, it turned out okay, darling. It turned out okay. I held up my glass to her wherever she was. Then I snapped it against the bar. So he's, he's a much more haunted protagonist in the, in the book. And I think that's probably something that played better on the page than it would have played on the screen because even though this is a movie that is certainly you know, defined by genre tropes that are familiar to everyone that might have been just a little bit too familiar the oh right the guy's posting to the girl who's not there because she's dead might have just seemed like a little bit too much visually even though it played really well on the page 
I mean, there are arguments to be made, but this is kind of a happy ending that the the both the book and the movie end with. I mean, he is exonerated in the book. He just never even is accused of the crime the second time through in the movie. And it ends with them kissing in this carriage right before they go into Sloppy Joe's where hopefully no one murders her. So it's strange to have these you know pulp novels and this this film noir where you have a happy ending and i suppose the way that we can sorrow it is by saying you know well in the uh in the book she's dead um so he never does get the girl and now he's going to pine for her forever and in the movie you don't know if this is a dream or reality or if that nightmares if the dream's going to end and he's thrust back into the nightmare again other big differences in the movie, he's completely innocent of anything, but in the book, he does strangle Eddie Roman, and it's sort of ambiguous whether he killed him or whether it was a gunshot. And so there is this sort of guilt hanging over him where he may have murdered someone. Even though if anybody needed killing, it was Eddie Roman. Totally. Could do it in the name of that manicurist. And that's kind of what Acosta is totally okay with that in the book. Yeah, and I like how suddenly his English goes out the window. I've come to give myself up for the murder of Ed Spinelli. Well, what are you going to do about it, Inspector? About what? About what? About what I just told you, the murder. I don't speak English so good. I often miss hearing things that are said, especially when they are said too fast. All right, I can say it slower. I just killed a man named Ed Spinelli. My English stinks today. I don't understand. You don't understand? I said... I don't know what you said. If I should get word from the commissioner to hold a man named Scott for murder, that would be different. It would be in my language. Unless that should happen and it hasn't, please, would you mind not coming in here and mumbling in this English of yours that I don't understand? All right, we are going to take a break and play an interview with Francis M. Nevins, the author of Cornell Woolrich, First You Dream, Then You Die. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Do you like movies? Do you like bids? Do you bathe in raw meat? 
Do you dance under the fiery sky of Ra? Daisies threaded through your man chest mane? Foolish question. Yes, we all do. But do you do it listening to the podcast from the After Movie Diner? If not, then you're missing out and you may or may not spend eternity in insufferable torment wedged between Simon Cowell and Piers Morgan in an elevator that smells of death. The After Movie Diner is a website dedicated to movies. New, old, large, small, and of every genre. There are written reviews, interviews with the famous and interesting, and a weekly podcast with comedy, reviews, interviews, a variety of fascinating and flatulent co-hosts, and music to tap your toe to. So why aren't you on board? Get there or miss out on the podcasting sensation of a generation. One that feels like being slightly tongued by an over-enthusiastic cocker spaniel. Find us on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, TalkShoe, and over at AfterMovieDiner.com. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Before we even start to talk about Woolrich, I want to talk about you, and I want to know a little bit more about your background, because as far as I know, your background is much more in in the legal world than it is in the world of Pulp Fiction. My doctoral degree is in law. I was a law professor for 34 years. I've been involved in a lot of interesting cases, but I've also done a lot of writing. I've done six novels and 40-odd stories of my own. And I've written a great deal about other writers. I've written books on film. Over the years, I've done an awful lot of writing on a wide variety of subjects. Were you always a lover of writing and and especially about, uh, and moreover, of reading? Well, I learned to read before I started kindergarten. And I don't know how I did it. One of the last conversations I had with my mother before she died, she told me she had not taught me. And her best guess was that somehow I had taught myself playing with alphabet blocks. I don't know. I'm too young. I've forgotten. But I started kindergarten knowing how to read, so they jumped me. And I finished kindergarten and first grade in one year. You know, never had any problems with school. I was uh, pretty much, you know, at the top of the, uh, of the of any heap I was put in. And I went to law school, went to NYU. A couple of years later, I wound up involved with the Woolrich estate, and involved with my own writing. I met Fred Danay, who was better known as Ellery Queen, who was the founder of the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, and Fred encouraged me to write for him, and then began to buy the stuff I sent him. And eventually I decided, well, maybe I should try a novel. And it sold, it was dedicated to Fred, of course, and it became a book club selection and was in print for five or six years. And by that time, I was a young law professor, and this was a very nice supplement to a very small salary. So I kept on keeping all these plates in the air. I don't know how I did it now. I could never do it today. Um, But uh, I did. What was your first encounter with Woolrich as far as his writing goes? Back when I was 17 years old, a three-book omnibus volume came out 
which contained Phantom Lady, Deadline at Dawn, and a bunch of short stories. I think that was the earliest of Woolrich that I read, and he knocked me over. And I never met him, but when I was in law school at NYU, I lived about two miles from him. And I suppose I could have gone uptown and knocked on his door, but I was a shy, bookish nerd, and everyone knew that Woolrich was the loner's loner. So I never did that. A year or so after I graduated from law school, he died. And uh, then a while after that, I was invited to help out with the estate. I, I don't want to be indelicate, but why you? What what brought them to your door? Well, I actually wrote a letter to the Chase Manhattan Bank, which was the trustee, and just out of curiosity, asking, will there be any uh, uh, Woolrich novels that will be published in the future? And that's how they suddenly came to know there was somebody out there that knew something about Woolrich. I was told that until then, they were relying on the mother-in-law of one of the young bankers who had read some Woolrich when she was a young woman. And then out of the blue, they got me, and I worked with the estate for many years. So it's one thing to work for the estate, to be a lawyer, and also to be a writer, but to sit down and say, I'm going to do pretty much the book on Woolrich and his life. How did that decision come to you? It just grew. I had so much material on Woolrich. I had written about him for so many different publications, uh, but there was so much more to be said. And very few people were in the position that I was to be able to say it because I had gotten hold of copies of just about every word he ever wrote. And, of course, I got his posthumous papers, copies of them from the estate. The writing took about 10 months in one sense. I mean, in another sense, it took me since I first discovered Woolrich, you might say 30 years. Depends on how you want to count. Right. You could injure a small child with this book. I mean, it yeah. is nothing. at the doorstop. It's, it's amazing. And it's just so thorough when it comes to his life and everything. It's just, uh, it's amazing. And Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's a bit misleading to call the book a biography, because I like to call it the life of a man who had no life. So I had to do the best I could with the material available. How do you go about trying to build a book about a man who has no life, how do you try to turn that into a biography, into a story? Well, I was lucky in that there were a few people who were still alive then who knew Woolrich about as well as he could be known, which was not very well. And I was able to get in touch with all of them and interview some of them, correspond with the others. People like Lee Wright, who was the editor at uh, Simon & Schuster that bought his first novels, People like uh, Jacques Barzun, who was a classmate of his at Columbia University, and they all contributed very much to the more purely biographical part of the, of the book. But Woolrich was so hard to know, he wasn't interested in being known. I mean, he lived like a recluse with his mother, and when she died, he sort of cracked up and died by inches himself. He was only 64 when he died. And it's sort of amazing that he lived that long because he did not take care of himself in the least. And, of course, he drank like a fish. Reading about his life, he, he almost seems like a, like a stereotype of, of the, the pulp writer, you know, the hard drinking, the living in a hotel for so many years. That always strikes me as unusual. Not in New York City, I don't think. Uh, there's not that many private houses in Manhattan. And, I mean, the place where he and his mother lived was, at the time they moved into it, pretty high class. 
it went downhill radically over the decades, and it was a dunghill uh, by the time his mother died, and then he finally moved out and wound up at the Sheraton Russell, which is on Park Avenue and 37th Street. Best known, I guess, if you're into movies, the bar of the Sheraton Russell was the place where, in the movie The Verdict, Paul Newman socked whoever the woman was, the Sharon Stone, I forget, when he found out that she was working for the opposite side in the lawsuit and basically was a spy in Newman's camp. That was shot, that this was after Woolrich's death. Sheraton Russell, uh, I visited there when I uh, was doing work on the book. I talked with a couple of employees who vaguely remembered Woolrich. There was a documentary on Woolrich. This was after his death uh, for German television. And I think I write about it a bit in the book. Uh, it's never been seen here. It was seen on German and Italian television. I'm not sure where else. But the German director came to New York, and I introduced him to various people that I thought he should interview, like Jacques Barzin. One thing that that guy did, the director did, he found Woolrich's barber. And a recluse that he was, he had to get his hair cut. And he actually interviewed Woolrich's barber. There's, you know, it's 40 or 50 seconds in the documentary. Uh, that I did not do. It didn't really, you didn't really learn anything about it except what the color of his hair was. By the time I was writing the book, I was pretty well acquainted in the mystery writing community. And people opened their doors to me and shared their recollections of Woolrich with me. Without them, you wouldn't have any kind of biography at all. You'd just have a discussion of each of his novels and stories in turn. I want to ask you about his relationship with Hollywood, because I'm very surprised at just how young he was when his stories started getting adapted for the silver screen. Yeah, he was a bit of a boy wonder. He, was, he actually quit college. He was in third year of college when his first novel sold, and he quit college falsely believing he had it made he was going to be the next F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was his literary idol back then. And, well, he did a few novels. The second novel won a huge prize, and uh, the movie rights sold, and young Woolrich was invited out to Hollywood to work on the movie. This was still, this was late silence. This was not talkies yet. And Woolrich went out there, stayed maybe a year or so. He very foolishly got married, uh, which didn't last very long. He never got screen credit for anything while he was out there. The movie was made. I, I think it's lost. Uh, the silent movie called Children of the Ritz. And we don't know, you know, uh, apparently Woolrich did not get credit for that either, except, of course, as author of the novel. And nothing else worked for him out there. He wrote a few more novels. This crazy marriage came apart, and he ran back to New York and mother, with whom he lived for pretty much the rest of his life, for the rest of her life. One interesting aspect of all of this, which I talk about in the book, at the time Woolrich was out there at First National, there was a Danish emigre director named Benjamin Christensen, and he directed three movies, sort of horror, silent horror movies. The titles are credited to somebody named William Irish. Woolrich people can still get into a lively discussion. 
was that Woolrich? Or was this somebody Woolrich happened upon and remembered the name decades later when he needed a pseudonym? We don't know. I can't believe that First National would have paid Woolrich big money to come out to Hollywood and then allow him to work under a pseudonym. That's not economic rationality, but we don't know. There are other occasions later on uh, when Woolrich actually wrote radio scripts based on his own stories and never got credit. I have a friend who actually went into the network radio archives, and we found that one of these, maybe the best one, was credited on the network's paperwork to a man named George Corey. No one named George Corey is known to have worked for radio. George was one of Cornell Woolrich's middle names, and Corey is obviously short for Cornell. So the evidence is pretty good that Woolrich wrote this, and I think it was The Black Curtain, which I think is the best radio play based on Woolrich ever. And if you, uh, they did this on, to the best of our knowledge, uh, on my recommendation, they went on the web and found a clip from the Black Curtain and ran it as part of their program. This was a 30-minute version, apparently written by Woolrich, starring Cary Grant. And if you do the same thing, there are two versions of this play for the, the suspense radio series back in the early 40s. Uh, the one you want, Grant delivers his lines much more emotionally and better. There are obviously two different directors on these, and I can read you the lines if you'll give me a second to consult my book. Um, this is the, uh, if you uh, search the web, this is the passage you want to look for. I, I should say, to make it clear to your listeners, the story of the Black Curtain, very, very powerful story. It begins with the second blow. A man is hit on the head by a falling beam, and he wakes up and he suddenly realizes he has lost three years of his life. He has no idea who he was or what he did during that period. And then he discovers that there's love, hate, a murder charge, the whole ball of wax waiting for him from this lost identity that he tries to recover. The woman who loved him in this other identity winds up in the radio version dead. I won't tell you how. And here's Grant's exit lines. And it's sort of the essence of noir fiction, I think. He says, I tried to put it all behind me to resume my life where I left off over three years ago. Sometimes when it gets toward evening, I go and walk along Tillery Street. <laughs> Once in a while, somebody, somebody I don't know, will say, hello, Danny. And I just say, hello, and walk on. <laughs> I don't want to find out anything anymore. I want it all to die away and be still. And it will. All except Ruth. Because somewhere behind that black curtain, I was loved and loved someone. We must have known a love that I'll never know again. It's the essence of noir literature, the essence of Woolrich. I couldn't believe that anyone other than Woolrich could have written those lines. And then my friend investigated the CBS archives and found what I think is convincing evidence, this name George Corey. I know that you are a film fan, and I know that you are obviously a fan of hard-boiled literature. Are you a fan of the films that were made from Woolrich's material, or TV shows, obviously, radio dramas we've talked yeah. a little bit about? I've seen 
almost all of them. The movies I've usually seen several times. The TV, I didn't see all of it. A lot of it seems to be lost. But you can find some on YouTube. I found recently, so this is not in the book, on YouTube, an episode of the TV version of Suspense, which was live, which apparently was the pilot. And I did not know this existed. It's based on a very powerful Woolwich story called Goodbye, New York. And you can find it on, on the web. It's, it's a story you just can't do live. But this is like January 1949, before there was TV, so to speak. Because Woolwich, so much of Woolwich's stories had been on the radio suspense, uh, he was sort of a natural for the TV version of suspense. And lots of his stories were adapted for that series and all sorts of other series from usual, uh, well, the 50s and the 60s. And Alfred Hitchcock presents thriller, actually Playhouse 90, did a 90-minute live version of Rendezvous in Black, which I gather is lost. I did not see it when it came on the air, and I've never noticed it anywhere among video dealers and DVD dealers and whatever. But he made a ton of money from the media. First movies and radio and then TV. He lived like a bum, but he was a very wealthy man. I'm sort of glad I never got to know him. He was not the kind of person that most people could know. But I have known and am friends with a few people that knew him as well as he could be known. A few read the last few chapters of his life, there's a gentleman named Don Yates who figures prominently. Don was a young professor who got to know Woolrich in the 60s. Whenever he came to New York, he visited with Woolrich. When Woolrich died, Don wrote a beautiful memoir of Woolrich, which was never published except the parts that I used in First You Dream, Then You Die. Don Yates is still alive. I think he's still in good health. He's out in St. Helena, California the wine country. He's the kind of person, with some of the others who have since died, who really enriched my book, Beyond Imagination. So this episode is going to be about the chase. And I was wondering what you thought of that film. I didn't like it, really. I just reread before you called what I wrote about it. I haven't seen the picture in quite a while now. But it, I think, is the picture that most Woolrich people are most likely to get an argument about. Some love it, some hate it. And I try to do justice to both camps in what I wrote. Personally, subjectively, it just goes all wrong. It starts out well from the book, and then it veers away from the book and sort of goes crazy. On the other hand, the latter part of Woolrich's book has problems too, and could not, I don't think it could have been filmed the way Woolrich wrote it, with, uh, you know, all these secret passages and... Uh, slant-eyed Chinese, and Woolrich was not politically correct. I find that the black mask writers, you know, that that era of writing, they weren't really concerned about that. Well, they weren't, but I mean, every so often, I mean, like, even with Woolrich, as he matured, and as the 50s came in, he began to do better at portraying black characters. And I talk about that in the book, too. There's one story which I put in Nightwebs, my first Woolrich book, my first Woolrich collection, where Woolrich never tells you this, but it's very clear that the main character is black. This is a story called, oh, what is it called? 
One Night in Barcelona or something like that. And in his 50s stories, every so often, you have a quite sympathetic black character, not a central character, but these characters show you that Woolrich was maturing. I have to say, his bibliography makes my head spin sometimes just with the titles and getting them conflated or confused. Just the number of stories with the word black in the title is staggering to me. And and then you add to them the uh, the titles with dark in them. But uh, Woolrich was one of the founding fathers of noir. There are basically, I would say, I, I used to say four corners. Literary corners, Hammett, Chandler, James M. Cain, and Woolrich. And then, more recently, I sometimes add a fifth corner, W.R. Burnett. I mean, he despised his own work. He detested his own writing. He did not keep copies of his novels or stories. He had nothing. I arranged the papers that were in his apartment at his death uh, for Columbia University, and they were almost... Nothing. Not 1% of what you would expect from someone who had spent so many years of his life writing, writing, writing. Why do you think that is? Because he hated himself and he hated his work. That's my conclusion, anyway. We know, I mean, his self-hatred was, I'll use a psychological word, overdetermined. It had many roots. One of them was he never succeeded at his real aim, his real ambition, to be the next F. Scott Fitzgerald. He also hated himself because he was thin as a rail and white as a ghost, and his father was this Mexican macho who must have made him feel terrible. Thirdly, and maybe most interesting to people today, as you know from the book, he was a deeply closeted gay man. And you couldn't expect anything other than that from a gay man who died the year before the Stonewall Tavern riots, which are supposedly the beginning of the gay liberation movement. If he was that closeted, did he hate gays? Judging from his writing, yes. The few times that gay characters come up. The story is called Story to be Whispered, and it was published in 1963. Sometimes it is reprinted without the end of the story. Well, what happens, this young man from the sticks comes to San Francisco, this is in the 1920s, and he sets out to pick up a woman, and he makes a play for this woman, drinks prohibition gin with her, he gets an invitation to her room, and then he beats her to death. The way this story ends in the magazine version, you never understand why, but when it came out in a collection of Woolrich, uh, the last story collection published in his lifetime, uh, we, he cleared it up, and he says, but it wasn't as though I had killed another man, or even, God forbid, as if I had killed a woman, or yet, banished the thought, killed a little child. All I had killed was a queer. Oh, wow. Now, you tell me he was not eaten with self-hatred and self-contempt. How did other writers interact with him, or did they at all? I mean, you say, you talk about how reclusive he is. Yeah, he, uh, he had very little interaction with other writers. When he was writing for the Pulps, I mean, he knew a few of them. Uh, one of them, whom I talk about in First You Dream, was a guy named Steve Fisher. I never met Steve Fisher, but we had some correspondence about Woolrich. 
and Steve Fisher, uh, and he would go out drinking sometimes. But most of the writers who were Woolrich's contemporaries, I don't think he knew at all. I don't think he read very much in his field. I don't think he read very much of anything, really. And there's sort of an, there's a story in First You Dream, an indication of this, where he is asked to recommend some stories for an, for an anthology. And you can see what he does if you have a particular anthology that I have. He had a copy of that because he had two stories in it. And he pulled it down and just reeled off the titles of four or five stories from it. He was not terribly well-read in his field. He was, not, he was not much of a student. I mean, his marks were pretty bad at Columbia until he quit. I remember I, uh, Jacques Barzun invited me over to his office at Columbia at one time. And uh, they were classmates in the early 1920s at Columbia. And Barzun was talking about what the university was like back then. And this was 50 years earlier. And at one point, he checked the yearbooks to see if Woolrich had actually graduated. And he couldn't find Woolrich's name. Well, we now know Woolrich quit when his uh, first novel sold when he was a junior in college. But he remained uh, fond of Columbia. And, of course, he left his entire estate to Columbia in a scholarship trust named after his mother. That still exists. You can go online and check out the Claire Woolrich Scholarship Fund and see who has gotten support from it over the years since Woolrich died. Getting back to the adaptations of his work, did he care about those at all? I mean, I don't think so, although uh, this is in uh, First You Dream also. Uh, one of the Columbia professors who obviously knew Woolrich, named Mark Van Doren, he was a literature professor, at one point went to see The Black Angel, which is a 1946 movie based on Woolrich's novel of the same name. And he wrote Woolrich about it, and Woolrich then wrote him back, and we have the letter he wrote back when he actually went out to see this movie, and he was disgusted with it. He said, all I could think of was, my God, is this what I've wasted my life at? But I think it's the best movie ever based on a Woolrich novel. I'm not comparing it with movies based on Woolrich short stories like Rear Window. But, but the movies based on Woolrich novels, I think that's the best. The same year as The Chase, 1946. Well, yeah, it seemed like that was a real boom time for him. But then over the years, it's just been consistent as far as people making movies or television shows out of his work. It's it just been consistent. It, the 40s, the 50s, and to a certain extent, the 60s. It began to trail off as the dramatic anthology program trailed off on television. But for many years, and I have copies of his financial records, this was the bulk of his income. Some years, he was making around $50,000 a year when 5000 was a decent salary. And But he, he lived as if there were no tomorrow, as if he didn't know where his next meal was coming from. He spent almost nothing. I mean, his idea of a meal is booze, cigarettes, and coffee. Uh, there's one story of Woolrich which shows you how little he knew about fine dining. It's called The Fingernail, and it takes place in a luxury restaurant in New York, and it's a conversation between two men. And you know what their gourmet meal is? Rabbit stew. <laughs> <laughs> 
Woolrich, of course, smoked incessantly, and so all of his characters smoke. He never learned how to drive a car, and so you almost never find cars being driven in Woolrich. Of course, most of the stories take place in New York, where you don't need a car. I know that many of his stories deal with murder. Obviously, he's not a murderer. But what are some of those other themes that he's playing with a lot in his, in his work? Well, I've called him, and it's, been, it's spread, it's used a lot now, the Hitchcock of the written word. I mean, he was the genius at generating suspense. No one could do it like Woolrich. And for that very reason, there are no series characters in Woolrich. If you have a series character, then you know this character is going to come out of it okay. Woolrich did not want that. None of his characters were strong enough to survive. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But that's the suspense. You don't know. Uh, you don't know whether you're reading a dark story or a lighter story as you're reading Woolrich. Usually, when the story turns out more or less happily, it's because Woolrich has really loaded the deck with all sorts of strange coincidences and whatever. He's much more at home with stories that end horribly, darkly, in despair and destruction. I want to know a little bit more about some of your other work, because I know that you've, you know, you talked about doing some of the collections and everything, but it seems like such a different world that you wrote about the films of Hopalong Cassidy. It is, yes. I, uh, I guess I have quite a stretch. My latest book, which came out early this year, is uh, the name of it is They Called the Shots, and it's about the movie directors that I've known and their colleagues and contemporaries. And these are basically directors of Western serials action pictures. Nothing at all like Woolrich. I've written a book on the Cisco Kid, American Hero Hispanic Roots. I've done books on some of the directors that I've known, like Joseph H. Lewis, Paul Landrus. My best friend in Hollywood was William Whitney, who was the Hitchcock of the action scene. Amazing guy, an amazing guy. I mean, knowing him was sort of like knowing Mozart or Michelangelo. And Google his name. There's growing recognition of him. I'm doing a program in California uh, with Bill's son. You can, he keeps a website up called www.williamwhitney.com. You'll find me on it, too. You'll find tons and tons of Bill Whitney material. That's Whitney with no H. He was an amazing guy. I have been blessed with amazing people in my life. Some were movie directors. Some were writers. And I've spent a lot of time sort of paying tribute to them, writing about them. And in between all of that, doing my legal work, doing my novels and stories, doing my Woolrich stuff, I was, uh, it really amazes me how much I could do when I was younger. We are back and we are talking about The Chase. And one of the things that I found most interesting about The Chase was that looking at the pedigree of some of the people that were behind this movie, 
this movie really shouldn't be quite what it is. I mean, if Philip Jordan, the uh, uh, the screenwriter, he's written tons of great things. The Big Combo, Dillinger, Johnny Guitar. I mean, his, his list goes on forever and ever. Just some really terrific titles in there. Of course, a lot of stuff that I've not seen. I'm not sure if they're fantastic or not, but I know for sure I love The Big Combo and I love Johnny Guitar. It was directed, though, by Arthur D. Ripley, who really i don't want to say it this way because it sounds like i'm being rude it's like he had no business directing films noir but he really this was not his his wheelhouse this was but he was a gag writer for Max Sennett for a long time. He did a lot of the one-reelers and two-reelers with you know, Max Sennett back in the day. He ended up working with Frank Capra for a while, and they did some work he did together. He some of the W.C. Field shorts, like The Barbershop. Right, right. Some classic comic stuff. And so it's like this one, and there's another one that, that he directed, where they are really super dark. And just, it, it's like this strange thing on his resume you know and then after that he kind of you know it's it, 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 this it, it's such a, an anomaly especially the chase i would say is one of the most one of the biggest anomalies on this guy's cv and it's like how the hell did this happen i wish that we could speak to to arthur ripley and find out why i mean i wonder if this has anything to do with the producer and the cinematographer um seymour uh Nebenzal, who had produced M in Germany and Nebenzal was uh, or I'm sorry enough Franz Planner who was the photographer also got his start in Germany and did some fantastic movies here in the US like 7 a uh, 711 Ocean Drive Champion Crisscross Letter from an Unknown Woman uh Her Sister's Secret uh 99 Ripper Street you know, he, so he certainly has uh, a noir pedigree. So I wonder how those guys ended up hooking up with, with Philip D. Ripley, you know? And then eventually, Ripley is it was one of, if not the first film professors at UCLA and really helped set up the whole film department of UCLA. So what a strange and fantastic career this guy had to start off with the Max Senate comedies, directing some of these classic shorts, direct you know, this one and uh, Voice in the Wind is the other one I was trying to think of, which was almost kind of like a, almost a precursor to the pianist. I mean, it is this, you know, um, uh, I don't want to say post-war film because I want to say it was 1944, but this war film, super dark about this uh, piano player and all this kind of stuff. And um, and then to go on and, and form the cinema department at UCLA. It's just like, wow, what a, what a terrific pedigree this guy had. Well, I think part of what you're seeing there is, frankly, something that hasn't existed since the late 60s, early 70s, which is just the pure machine that Hollywood was for many decades. And it was a machine that kept on churning regardless of who was in it or who wasn't and kept a lot of people working. A lot of people came to the U.S., for example, um, after the Second World War, after the First World War, and found work because they had been filmmakers in Europe with various degrees of experience and were able to fit themselves into this system and work. And a lot of them were happy, frankly, just to be working and 
Some of them tried to put a little bit of a personal stamp on what they were doing. Others of them, I think, just threw their hands in the air and then said, whatever. I mean, I'm in America and I have a job and everything's fine. But, you know, it's it, it, what that phrase, the genius of the system, means. The systems really did keep on rolling and you could work within it and do things that had nothing to do with what the larger system was interested in. You could make your little mark. You could take a movie that was going to be shot in 13 days. And if you had the experience and the ingenuity that it took to really plan that film out well, you could make a pretty good little movie, the kind of movie, exactly the kind of movie that we're talking about now. Or you could just walk in and you could hack something out. And you know what? That would be okay, too, because you got the same paycheck either way. One of the main characters in this film is another foreign actress, though you wouldn't know it to listen to her, but Michelle Morgan or Michelle Morgan, pretty much this is one of the few, as far as what I could tell looking at the titles, it looks like one of the few English language films that she made. I mean, so much of her work was in her um, um, native France and continued to be after this. I mean, she made a few things here and there, like The Fallen Idol and Port of Shadows, but really so much of her work was done in France. And it's just like, I never, I didn't detect a French accent whatsoever from her voice. She must have had terrific training. If anything, she sounded British. Um, I, She kind of reminded me a little bit of like... Um, I don't want to say Kate Hepburn, but there was definitely something almost mid-Atlantic to her voice, uh, as opposed to, you know, I never would have picked up a French accent from her. You're right. She did have really good vocal coaching at some point in her career, though there were a couple of points in this movie where you actually can hear it, and one of them is when she's on that pier. I forget what her line is, but you can hear quite clearly that she's not American and she's not English, that there is an accent there. And she would do some other stuff that, you know, I highly recommend. Like, uh, folks really need to check out um, The Fallen Idol if they haven't seen great that before. Movie. Yeah, some great stuff. And then Steve Cochran has, was a classic actor. And just, I mean, him being in, of course, White Heat, you know, most people know him from that. But he had such a long career after this, you know, and things like Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison, which I know is kind of tough to find for a little while, but I'm hoping that it's it's out there a little bit more readily available now. But, you know, he just did so much. And I have to say the the Bob Cummings. Now, I don't think Bob Cummings necessarily has the cachet that he once did, but he was one of these guys who is welcome, welcomed into America's living rooms so much through so much of his career. He was like, just, you know, he was on love American style. He had, uh, I think at least two versions of the Bob Cummings show. He was on my living doll for a long time. And he just had such a long career and was really I would say super popular, but I don't think that many people would, you know, know who you're talking about when you talk about Bob Cummings. They might think, oh, well, Dial in for Murder or some of these other films. You know, we kept keep or I keep dropping Hitchcock titles in this episode, but uh, yeah, I don't think too many people would know who Bob Cummings is these days, which is really kind of a shame. And I think part of that is because he was one of those consummate studio actors who just came in, did his job knew his lines, knew his marks, and didn't have the kind of overwhelming persona 
that made you recognize him every time you saw him. You know, Peter Laurie was somebody who came in, knew his lines, knew his marks, did whatever he was told, and yet he's unforgettable. Bob Cummings I think, was one of those people who, partly by virtue of being a, an Anglo-Saxon every guy, kind of blended into the woodwork, which is no reflection on his talent or his dedication to what he did. He's the perfect everyman. Exactly. Which makes him perfect for this role. From the first time that you see him staring in that window at the beginning of this film, you can identify with this guy. You can relate with this guy. He's got a face that you want to get to know. You want to be around him. And so I think he plays that really well. And you don't want to see bad things happen to this guy. So I think that they really did a good job of casting him. Are you going to be familiar with the novel Flicker? Flicker? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Flicker. Okay, no, well, tell me. This is, but, you know, this is a movie that made me think a great deal about Flicker because this is the kind of movie that Max Castle, uh, the either protagonist or antagonist, depending on how you look at it, of Flicker, would have made. He was a guy who worked within the studio system, a guy with a European background who came to America and applied everything he knew about filmmaking to making low-budget studio movies that had something extra. This is, one of, this is a movie that feels as though there's something extra going on in it. There's something that's a little bit below the surface, something that's hidden in the shadows, uh, something that's maybe in those crashing waves as the two of them stand at the end of that pier that you don't quite see, but you know you saw something. And that's a very potent part of a film like this. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And and now having this restored version, maybe we'll actually get a chance to, uh, you know, break out that that eyepiece that our protagonist of um, uh, Flickr had and be able to see some of those uh, death head images in the waves or in those shadows, because I think they are they would definitely be hiding in a movie like this. All right. We are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show from another time comes a man of great power. Talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. A warrior of incredible strength. You've the devil in you. We've been kinsmen 20 years. Connor McLeod was my kinsman. I don't know who you are. Because you were born different, men will fear you, try to drive you away. man uncertain of his future. What you got here, Brenda, is a guy who's been creeping around since at least 1700. Not possible. And haunted by his past. Wait a minute, Nash. I want some answers. You cannot die, McLeod. I'm Connor McLeod of the clan McLeod. I was born in 1518 in the village of Glenfinnan on the shores of Loch Shiel. I am immortal. <laughs> a hero who is about to face his greatest challenge. You will always be weaker than I. What can you tell me about a seven-foot lunatic hacking away with a broadsword at one o'clock in the morning, New York City, 1985? Not much, for he is not alone. In the end... Oh. 
be only one. Highlander, there can be only one. That's right. We'll be back with a discussion of The Highlander, where we'll be celebrating the 300th episode of The Projection Booth. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Maitland McDonough and Colin Gallagher. So, Maitland, what is the latest with you? Uh, the latest with me is that I am working on putting out a new novel under my imprint, 120 Days Books, uh, which is dedicated to reprinting vintage gay adult novels of the 1970s find pieces of pulp fiction that uh, in so many cases are much, much better than they ought to be. Are you still working with Gay Cruise, or is that one kind of put to bed and you're working on the next one? I am finishing up Gay Cruise, and it should be available soon. Fantastic. And Cullen, what's the latest with you, sir? Still playing hardcore and country music, trying to get out there and play some more. I just uh, wrote about uh, Willie Dynamite for the upcoming Arrow Blu-ray which is should be out early next year. Yeah, it's kind of appropriate that Jack Chick just passed away because I've always been reminded of Jack Chick while I was watching Willie Dynamite. It just seems like a Jack Chick comic come to life. I, I adore Jack Chick, monster though he was. I, I have a huge collection of those little pamphlets. They, they are unbelievably vivid, poisonous storytelling. That moralistic thing that that chick was so into and and the kind of preaching that he would do i mean poor willie i mean nothing good happens to poor willie this is not a, a glorification of a pimp kind of thing you know he just he takes a hard fall in that totally. movie with some great music and some amazing clothes i do have to say <clears throat> To the point where it's almost like a parody. <laughs> Looking at those it's close. Kind, I mean, the movie is kind of a parody. It's it's very self conscious. And then, of course, seeing Gordon from Sesame Street put a whole different spin on it for me. Roscoe Orman does a great performance. Well, where can people keep up with you, Colin? I don't really maintain my blog anymore, but I'm on Facebook. I put no security or safety settings, so everything should be public. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episodes. I'll link over to Cullen's non-maintained blog and over to where you can pick up Maitland's books. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and you can also go over to Patreon, where you can leave a donation to the show. Every donation, every rating, every review we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Looking over his shoulder On the damn from American 
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.